And welcome on in, everybody, to the Check Your Brain podcast hosted by me, Tony Mazur. Wherever you are watching or listening to this, I'm on Rumble, I'm on YouTube, I am on Patreon. If you like what you hear and you are a freeloader and you're getting it all for free, make sure you go to Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur for just three bucks a month. You get early access to guests like this. You have uh, several more podcasts you'll get from me and all this other fun stuff. We get guests and, you know, we do specialty shows, bonus content, just three bucks a month at patreon.com slash Tony Mazur. Uh, but if you're for free, checking it out on YouTube, Rumble, or the podcast platforms, hit subscribe, leave a comment, whatever you want to do. Okay, that's enough of my commercials. And that is my logo, by the way. Cool logo uh, designed by my buddy Eric Evans. Go check him out at Illustrator, I-L-L-S-T-R-8-R at gmail.com if you want some freelance work done. Speaking of freelance work, my guest is somebody who has done plenty of freelance work, but he's also worked in D.C., and I've uh, gotten to know him over the last few months. And he, this is Shane Harris. And Shane, thanks for uh, doing this podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get into just talking about some of the topics that we have at hand right now, give us a little bit of your background that you did work in D.C. You worked with politicians. You were kind of part of the beast. Yeah, yeah. So just uh, by way of my background. Um, so it was very fortunate. My first, uh, my first job out of college was actually... Uh, working in the the White House in the former administration for President Trump. Um, so that was kind of a, a trial by fire uh, in, in a way of my entry into politics. Um, was very fortunate while I was in college to get an opportunity to intern there uh, at the White House. Um, and then after uh, I graduated, uh, got an email, asked me if I wanted to uh, come back out and and work there. And at the time, I'd actually planned on going to law school. Um, I was admitted and uh, had all my paperwork filed, and it was kind of a last-minute thing. And so, you know, one day I was I was planning on, on going to law school and the next day I was packing up and, and heading to D.C. And so it was a, it was kind of a sudden thing, um, but it was uh, the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm incredibly grateful to have, to have had that opportunity, um, kind of got an inside look into uh, into how D.C. operates, how the executive branch operates, um, kind of some internal workings of the White House. Um, after that, did uh, some time in the Senate as well. So we got a little bit of the legislative branch as well. Um, got to see how that works. Actually, was very fortunate to help set up uh, an office. I worked for freshman Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee. So he was elected in uh, 2020, came in in 2021, and I helped him uh, get his office set up and everything. Worked with some more fantastic folks there. Uh, can't say enough about Everybody I worked with at, at both those locations, just some, you know, real dedicated public servants. Um, you know, th there's good and bad people in every field. And uh, I was very fortunate to be around a bunch of really fantastic people uh, throughout my time in D.C. Um, and then after that, uh, decided to uh, set off on my own and do freelance work. So I do freelance writing. I um, also do a little bit of, of general political consulting as well, um, work, help people get their social media up and running. So everything from uh, think tanks to political campaigns um, and really everything in between. So it's it's exciting. Um, it's a lot of work. You got to be on your toes 24-7, especially with the way the news cycle is. Um, but uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, I love it. I think it's important. And um, yeah, ha happy to be on to, to talk about it. So working in the Trump White House, was it... We've heard a lot of stories from, you know, Scaramucci to Omarosa to Steve Bannon in the early days to Sean Spicer, everything like that. And I, I think you, uh, Sean Spicer, predated you there. But was it as chaotic as it's being 
told in the media that told that it's just crazy. And is that that craziness different from normal DC craziness or like uh, to talk about a little bit about that of how it obviously, as everybody knows, whether you're pro Trump, anti Trump, it wasn't a normal time. Sure, sure. Yeah. So let me just uh, give you a little bit of background about about what I did there. So obviously, I was I was young. Uh, it was my first job out of college. So I was a very junior staffer. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I was involved in, you know, making a bunch of these decisions, but I was very fortunate to kind of be on the sidelines for them and, and be watching as this process unfolded. So for my first six months uh, in the White House, I worked in the correspondence office. And our job was to respond to every letter that the American people wrote in. Um, whether it was about border policy, whether it was just they wanted to share a personal story, anything like that, it was our job to respond to it. Um, you know, we did have obviously form letters that if somebody wrote in about border, we had border policy we sent back. Um, and so that was a very immersive experience for me, getting to know a little bit about a bunch of different policy areas and also getting to kind of test my writing shops a little bit. Uh, for the last year, I was extremely fortunate to work in the staff secretary's office. And so that's kind of a behind the scenes office that not a lot of people know about, but it does play a very important role in the West Wing operation. <clears throat> and so essentially what a lot of people have referred to it as, and I think it's accurate, it's the nerve center of the White House. And so everything that goes to the president uh, comes through the staff secretary's office. And in theory, the way it's supposed to work, the staff secretary is the one who gets the president sign off on everything. So when there's a product that needs to be presented to the president, whether it's a bill from Congress, whether it's an executive order, uh, a memorandum, anything, not really press things, press is kind of their own beast and they, they handle their own, they handle things in their own way, but anything else, we would be the ones who would take it and say, sir, uh, you know, this is what this document is. This is why you should sign it. And if he had any questions, uh, we had to be prepared to answer them. So he would often want to know, you know, did this person have sign off on it? Uh, did Treasury have sign off uh, sign off on it? Uh, commerce, were there any conflicts? And so it was our job to kind of make sure everybody who needed to have buy-in did have buy-in. And obviously, you know, in, in DC, there's a lot of competing interests. And so that, that job can get quite chaotic at times. And so, again, I, I was I was in more of a support role, but I was watching this process play out. And, you know, one thing um, my boss told me on one of my first one of my first days there, he said, you know, he wants me to think of this office as a duck swimming across a pond. You know, when you're on the outside, you see the duck. It's just gliding across the water. And what you don't see is how fast its feet are are moving underneath the water. And it's, it's causing all sorts of chaos and it's stirring up muck and and, and all sorts of stuff. And so that's kind of how I, I like to think of it. And I, I obviously haven't worked in any other administrations, but I can't imagine that they would be much different where there's a lot of stuff and a lot of people running around behind the scenes. But your ultimate goal is that it, it looks like uh, a smooth process from the outside. And obviously, sometimes uh, we, we did a better job at that of that than, than at other times. Um, but, uh, you know, it's. I mean, it's tough business. I mean, the United States is is the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world. And uh, so, you know, it, it's not it's not always going to be mess free. And uh, you just got to kind of hold it together, especially during um, COVID. I mean, right at the beginning there, I'm, I'm sure all of your listeners remember how chaotic that was, you know, just living your normal everyday life. And so trying to coordinate a response to something that had never been done before, um, when your job is to get buy-in from everybody, whether that be the CDC, the NIH, um, outside people, uh, you know, the military, everybody had to come together and agree. And so I think that was 
you know, that was the most challenging time. Um, but it was also the time where I, I learned the most about, and, and was also like really impressed upon about how much a lot of these people care, um, about a good response. And, you know, obviously there were, um, there were things we could have done better. Uh, there were things we could have done differently. Um, but, uh, it, it was, uh, it was an experience. And so that's kind of a, a long one way to answer your question, but that's kind of my initial, uh, that, those were my, my takeaways uh, from my time there. So what, what years were they? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I started, I, I remember very vividly, I, I graduated the first week of May and, uh, my first day on the job was the second week of May, uh, 2019. And then I was there all the way through my last day was December 31st, uh, 2020. And then my first day in the Senate was January 3rd, 2021. Yeah. Didn't something happen a couple of days after that? But uh, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get into some other stuff. But so you were there during a weird transition period, not Mm -hmm. necessarily for the White House, because there there was, but you were also there during a time when all of our social and societal norms had changed from you sign on not long after the Mueller report was released and basically kind of tells people like, yeah, you know, that Russian collusion stuff that we've been hearing about. And Adam Schiff has this uh, this tent outside of the CNN headquarters and is on all the time. Yeah, there was really no there there. And so you're a part of the And then it's basically it was like a couple of weeks where it didn't seem as chaotic. And then you started hearing about this phone call, the perfect phone call to yeah. Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine. Hmm. Where have I heard Ukraine in the news recently? But anyways, uh, so you were there from that time of at the beginning of COVID. So you went from I'm fresh out of college. I'm joining this administration, joining here in D.C., this new kid. And then all of a sudden you're there as you see things kind of did. Did things change on a dime or did you? Because I, I remember during the whole beginning of the COVID, the, the pandemic was it went from. March 8th, which was a Sunday, was don't touch your face and please wash your hands to by March 11th was every sports league needs to shut down. March Madness is shut down. Everything needs to get shut down. But from what we remembered a couple of several weeks earlier, we had heard even during the State of the Union address was the concern about COVID. What was that like? Was there this impending doom that you had heard about that there was going to be something, something was going to play into it, whether it was like a full on pandemic or the response to it that way before a lot of us knew that was going on. Like talk about what that feeling was like that for you as being a, a again, a fresh college kid not new in DC. And here you are in the biggest, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how to call it. I mean, cause it's, it's, there's a lot that went into it for you being a a student that goes into this this transfer this transformation that was happening in our country in real time right yeah you know in some sense um being you know a young kid uh and being there was kind of scary but in the other sense nobody else had been through it either so you're you're kind of in the same boat and i do remember at first you know we first started hearing about this and, you know, I think a lot of us there, we, we were learning about it along with everyone else. Um, you know, I'm sure, you know, high above my my pay grade and my clearance level, maybe there were some other conversations going on. Um, but, you know, from what I heard and, and even, you know, walking through the hallways and stuff, you know, it was we were kind of learning along with everybody else. Some people were really freaked out. Some people were kind of brushing it off, which which I think is how a lot of people were 
in the country as well. But I do remember one day, and, and I can't tell you the exact date, but uh, you know, we would all get updates on uh, the president's travel schedule. And obviously heading into 2020, big election year, and there were a lot of rallies planned. And so basically every time that there was either travel added to or removed from, from the schedule, uh, from the president's official schedule, the one that's public and, and everybody can see, uh, we would just get an email notifying us. And I remember sitting there at my desk and I was working on something and I kept hearing uh, my email notification, ding, 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 like almost like, you know, very repetitive. And I was like, what, you know, what's going on? Like something crazy going on. And I clicked over and it was all of the president's schedule, uh, travel schedules being canceled, all of his planned rallies. And, And that's kind of when it hit me and when I knew we've got something serious on our hands. Um, because if, if that's happening, if, if they think it's serious enough to cancel those rallies, um, you know, something's something's going on that that could turn into something big. Now, that being said, I don't think any of us really expected it, it to turn out to be what it was. Uh, but I do remember there was a there was a mood change at that moment. Uh, you know, before covid, we had just come through the impeachment and uh, President Trump's poll numbers had gone up Uh re-election was looking like a sure and sure thing by the day. I mean, he was polling so well in all the battleground states. There was even some talk among people that I knew on the campaign that we had an outside shot of winning Virginia and Oregon, which is like unthinkable, but they had data showing that it was in reach at that point. Um, and, and so there was a very marked shift almost overnight from, you know, we're going to coast into re-election and, and we're going to turn all our attention to the campaign to you know, we've got a national crisis on our hands that we've got to deal with. And, and that reflected in the workload as well. You know, it, they're never they're never short days in the White House, um, but it, it turned into, you know, 12 to 12 to 14 hour days minimum, seven days a week. I mean, there there was a stretch in uh, March and April of 2020 where I, I was I mean, I, I can't I, I don't think I had a day off for like six weeks or something crazy like that where I where well, I was well, everybody else was not working. You were sure picking up everyone else's yeah. slack. Yeah, well, it, it's kind of a funny story. So I actually was living with uh, two roommates at the time. And uh, I was going to ask this, too, by the way, how sure. do you afford living in D.C.? It's it, it's tough. It, it really is tough. Um, so I, I, I remember moving out there. Uh, and I didn't know what I was going to do because I knew I would not be able to afford rent by myself, but I didn't know anybody. And so fortunately, uh, my former supervisor from when I was an intern said, hey, I, you know, I know somebody who's also moving to D.C., also starting at the White House, same day as you. And so I basically texted him and said, hey, man, I know you've never met me, but uh, do you want a room together? And we kind of chatted for a bit and decided, sure. And, you know, thankfully, he was an, an awesome guy. He's one of my my very best friends to this day. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, you, you just kind of got to find people and uh, and and shack up with them. You know, it, it's interesting. There is a there's like a class stratification in D.C. There's a lot of people from very wealthy families who their parents kind of subsidize their their income. And then there's people who there's like eight guys living in a row house on Capitol Hill and like sleeping on top of each other. Um, so, yeah, you just kind of got to scrap and, and make it happen. Um, but anyways, you know, when COVID hit. Uh, I had two roommates at the time and uh, they both were in that their companies were in that state where it was like, you know, they didn't really know how long this COVID thing was going to last. So they just sent everyone home on telework, Um, but they didn't give them any work to do because they didn't know how to do it. 
And so I would come home, you know, I, I, we'd usually, I usually try to get in like seven, seven thirty, And if I was lucky, I would get home maybe nine 30, 10 o'clock at night. And these guys would have just been hanging out all day, like playing call of duty or video games or something. And I'd come back after, you know, 14 to 15 hour day. And they'd be like, Oh, Hey Shane, you know, what's, what's going on? You know, how was work? So it was, it was definitely a, that was honestly one of the most frustrating things, just knowing that like, mm. you know, and, you know, unfortunately a lot of people did get laid off. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time and, uh, and uh, a busy time, a busy time for sure. So what was president Trump like? Yes. You know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend that I had a ton of interactions with him. Um, you know, I left that to the more senior members of my team. Uh, in the few times that I did interact with him or, or be fortunate enough to witness one of his interactions, he was, you know, he was a serious guy, um, but he also kind of, he had this gravitas about him that I, I think it's difficult to understand unless you see him in person and, uh, and not just on, on TV. Um, so he really does, does command a room and, you know, obviously He's a very polarizing figure. Some people love him. Some people hate him, even within the Republican Party. Um, but one thing that I think you can't deny is that he does have a very commanding presence. And, and that's kind of the, the biggest thing that struck me in, in my few interactions with him. One thing that's interesting, and this is where we can make our transition to talking about some topics, too, what is the the present and future of the Republican Party and what fascinated me about the Trump movement and why I was kind of drawn to it at the beginning. I remembered sitting in, I was, I was down in Daytona beach, Florida. I was at a crystal burger. I was waiting for my order and I scrolled through Twitter and I saw a tweet from God, it might've been like vice or Vox or one of those like left-wing communist website rags. And it said something like Donald Trump is thinking of running for president. Well, several years earlier, I was on the Herman Cain train when he had that. Uh, was it the nine 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 plan or something like that? And I said, I'm a little tired of these career politicians, these lawyers, these attorneys that if you have a name, I was tired of the Mitt Romney stuff. I was tired of John McCain. I was tired of Mitch McConnell. I was tired of Lin Lindsey Graham. I thought the Republican Party out of all of them needed a real shot in the arm. That's why I was a Ron Paul supporter, especially in 2012. Since we weren't going to get that, we got Mitt Romney. We got uh, Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. And I thought in that time from the Tea Party movement to 2012, that the Republican Party failed their own base and that they and the media and Democrats kept calling Mitt, Rom oh, Mitt Romney. He's got binders full of women. He's a sexist. He's a racist. And John McCain, he's a racist. He's this and that. And I'm thinking to myself, like, they're the most milquetoast Republicans you can even think of. John McCain was known as the Maverick. He would cross the aisle all the time. McCain, fine gold, everything like that. And then when Trump comes around, he caught the attention of so many people who felt marginalized in this country that their party, the Republican Party, did not represent them. The Democrats certainly did not represent them. But even the Republicans, the party that they had voted for for a long time, was not representative of what their way of life was. So when Donald Trump, this three times or twice divorced, has several kids, has been in the news and Stormy Daniels and all this other stuff you've heard in the tabloids, why would... Christian America attach themselves to this man who 
is a it, many thought was a buffoon. Many thought was a womanizer, a, a, a New York playboy socialite, everything. Why would they attach themselves? And I got it immediately because it was more so the establishments and these establishment figures and the establishment in general seem to turn against the everyday American. So when Donald Trump comes on the scene down that golden escalator in 2015 and basically saying, yeah, I don't hate you. People are like, good, I like this guy. So it was nice to see somebody that actually seemed to fight for the working class people, for the marginalized, for the uh, uh, the. Uh, the the what people felt was the unheard person. And it took some people and especially a lot of Republicans to figure it out over time and go like, yeah, no, he's not a true conservative. Ted Cruz is a true conservative, Marco Rubio. But eventually, when they saw the attacks and the daggers, the figurative daggers that were shown at him and then everything that's happened since then, it's a different Republican Party than where we were just even 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're exactly right. Um, one thing that I that I really noticed when I was in D.C., I was there for uh, about a little over two years and um, it, it's a different world and, it, and it's different from middle America. It's different from the South. It's different from the Northeast. It's different from the West. It is its own creature. And, and people who are of that world, they look out for their own. And they don't look out for for the people in middle America. And that's one of the reasons that I, I left D.C. is I, I felt myself getting sucked into that. And, and it's so easy um, because there is so much wealth and privilege concentrated within, you know, 20 square miles of, of Capitol Hill. And I, I think that's part of, of what you're talking about and what you're referring to is this total disconnect between the DC establishment of both parties and what actual real working people in the rest of the country are experiencing. And, you know, so much of DC exists just to, just to keep propping up the establishment and the status quo. Uh, that's the reason that there's never progress on, on so many of these issues is because the politicians who have been there for 20 years recognize that well, if I actually solve this problem, what's the incentive? Like, how, how am I going to get people to come back out and vote for me? Mm -hmm. If I if I keep talking about that, that I want to protect unborn life, but then we pass pro-life policies. Well, how am I going to get people to donate to me? I, I've already done what they wanted me to do. What, what use do they have for me? And that's the kind of cynical mindset that motivates a lot of people in D.C. And, and I don't think that that motivates uh, President Trump. Because, you know, for him, you know, they talk about how much he benefited from the presidency. He lost millions and millions of dollars by becoming president. Yeah. That was the worst business decision that he ever made. Uh, and so and even now he's running again, like he's not running for the salary or, or to make money. I mean, there's nothing really in it for him other than that. You know, he does want to get back at the people that he felt wronged him. But I think that he genuinely cares about fixing some of these issues that that he's talking about. And uh, I don't think there's many people in Washington who can honestly say the same. So I, I think that's where a lot of his enduring appeal comes from. Well, same with RFK Jr. When you are somebody who has what uh, is commonly referred to as FU money, and you have somebody that like, if you have this kind of money and you're not doing anything and saying anything that you can be protected by, and then like, what use are you? So when Trump 
tarnishes his name. I mean, that's what it is. He's he's not the same Donald Trump he was 30, 40 years ago. I, I was watching a Golden Girls episode the other day, and Blanche actually mentions Donald Trump. Like, well, if he has the looks of a Mr. Mel Gibson and the wealth of Mr. Donald Trump. Right. And I'm like, whoa, I'm surprised they didn't go to TV land going like, yeah, we're going to edit that. We're going to take that out here. Um, but that's what he was at one time. So he, instead of he could have lived the rest of his life off of the, the celebrity apprentice and his ties and TV endorsements and everything and became president and, and, and in his first shot. <laughs> it's like he right. wasn't a senator. He didn't work his way up from city council to the mayor to this. And that. No, he started at president. It's like riding the biggest, tallest, fastest roller coaster in the in the world. And then everything else is just like, why would I want to do the bumper cars when I've already did, did that already? So it's it's a fascinating thing in the in the leaning towards populism that is kind of that middle America really did embrace in 2016 that they. But I think it's also it's it's not so much looking at Democrats and what's happened is the Republicans in it, it, it. You've heard this term uniparty where before there was kind of a, a maybe 20 something years ago. So I rem- I was 13 when 9-11 happened. I remembered at the time when it was let's put our personal politics aside and let's fight for this country. Well, what did we get out of it? We got the Patriot Act. We got uh, spying on terrorists, which we thought at the time. Good. Well, I'm not a terrorist. They're not going to consider me a terrorist. Well, what happened 20 years later? They considered anybody who's protesting in a school board meeting to be a domestic terrorist. They considered those who are upset that uh, that genderqueer is being uh, taught to second graders. Uh, you're a domestic terrorist. That if you were somewhere near the Capitol three Januarys ago, you're a domestic terrorist. Everything is your. So we didn't think 20 years ago, but who agreed upon it? Republicans and Democrats. Well, we're seeing that in real time right now with this Ukraine, with aid towards Ukraine, that Mike Pence is out on stage saying, uh, we haven't given enough. We haven't given enough Abrams tanks and more funding to Ukraine. The American people are looking at this and they've seen how disastrous the, the two, the Middle Eastern wars and all the other conflicts that we've had, Libya, Syria, everything in the last 20 years. Now, we have communities that have been devastated with opioids. We have communities devastated because of the lockdowns during COVID. Yet the optics of sending billions more dollars over to Ukraine for what? Most people, as Tucker Carlson said, can't even find Ukraine on a map. So why is it that Mitch McConnell and and Mike Pence will agree with Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden on something? And it seems to me that it's the old Bill Hicks joke of the puppet on the left says uh, this and the puppet on the right. Wait a second. They're controlled by the same person. And I think a lot of people have woken up to it, including supporters and President Trump himself to go. These people in D.C. seem to not have our best interests at heart. Yeah, you know, it's something that's always been very frustrating about the Republican Party is that it seems like Republicans far more than Democrats have to be drag kicking and screaming by their voters to embrace the policies that the majority of of the the base of the party actually wants it was that way with parents rights you know uh obviously governor glenn youngkin in virginia was one of the first to really embrace parents rights and show its electoral potential but before that it, it was a grassroots movement of parents who were fed up with the stuff that was going on in their kids schools but you had a lot of republicans who were saying, ah, you know, like, why don't we just stick to talking about the economy? 
why don't we just stick to talking about tax cuts? And, and it had to be the voters and the grassroots movement that said, no, absolutely not. And if you don't get on board with this, we're going to primary you with candidates who will, and we're going to boot you from office. And, and that is the case with the Republican Party on so many issues. You're starting to see it uh, with Ukraine. You know, you have you have people like like Lindsey Graham who who want to just keep sending billions and billions of dollars overseas while you have things like the train derailment in, in East Palestine and and the Hawaii wildfires that are not getting nearly the attention that they need. Um, the Ohio situation far more than the Hawaii one, by the way, uh, for obvious reasons. But, um, you know, it, it's something that that the Republican voting base has always had to deal with and they just need to be cognizant of because and, and listen, the Republican politicians will feed you the talking points all day long. You know, they'll they'll tell you that they're pro-life. But, you know, will they real when it comes down to it, are, are they going to shut down the government to defend the Hyde Amendment, for instance? You know, are, are they that pro-life? Because most of their voting base is. And so, you know, we, we just have to as conservatives or, or the conservative movement has to be much more cognizant about holding their leaders accountable because listen the democrats you know they're willing to dive all in whatever like the most far left position they can embrace they don't have to be told twice they're ready to go because they've all been brainwashed they're they've foot been, soldiers they're, right. they are foot soldiers for for a number of years that's why 20 I, i've said it before on my podcast a number of times why 2022 was not a red wave that a lot of pundits including democrat pundits thought it was going to be it's because a lot of them were one issue voters, which was abortion. When they saw the Roe versus Wade got overturned, uh, where they, they heard about the leak in early May. And then by June, it was like June 24th, they saw the Roe versus Wade had been overturned. They were steaming mad for several months to go to the polls. And that's where, like you said about Republicans, the Republican Party seems to play prevent defense using a sports analogy. When you play prevent defense, that's not guaranteeing you're going to win or lose the game. It depends. Re Democrats play to win. Republicans play to not lose. Sometimes when you play to not lose, you don't lose. You'll win. Okay, that's nice. But there's no fire. And that's why there's a lot more gravitation towards a Marjorie Taylor Greene, a uh, Lauren Boebert, a Matt Goetz, you know, some of these other more populist candidates, uh, as opposed to the you know, the days of of Mitch McConnell. And what I found interesting in the last couple of years, how things have really changed with politics pre pre COVID. Now, you were still in college, but obviously you remember the Brett Kavanaugh fight. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so fascinating because clearly, clearly. President Trump had every right to nominate after what happened from Harry Reid in 2013 and the filibuster and everything like that to Merrick Garland and. Uh, not having that after when uh, um, when um, uh, Scalia had passed away in 2016. So then when so Merrick Garland's on this revenge tour against Donald Trump for not, you know, and the Republicans for not nominating him for the Supreme Court. Uh, but Donald Trump in just four years had three Supreme Court justices. They picked Brett Kavanaugh, who truthfully, as a Catholic, even though he's a Jesuit and everything, I am not a big fan of a lot of the things that Brett Kavanaugh has had. He's been pretty moderate. He's a little too moderate for my taste. But the freakout over calendars, over 
frivolous thing. It's like, oh, well, there was a there was an allegation from a Christine Blasey Ford. Well, who is she? I have no idea who she is. And then she's like, he held me down. He did this. Well, when did this happen? I don't know. What house is this? I don't know. What happened this day? I don't know. She didn't know anything. But we had to take it for granted or we had to take it at face value because me too and all of that. And that was the one time it seemed like Lindsey Graham, when he's straightening his tie and Mitch McConnell seemed to, OK, maybe they are here to fight for the American people. And then that quickly went away. So I think the Republican Party needs to continue fighting in the culture wars. That's why you mentioned Glenn Young. And I've talked about that a number of times on this podcast that that swayed so many people mm-hmm. when Terry McAuliffe is there saying, yeah, no, parents really don't have a say in their kids education. Even blue dog Democrats from Loudoun County are going to say, screw you. <laughs> we absolutely have say what what we what our kids are going to learn in schools. That's why Glenn Youngkin is the governor right now. Republicans for decades decided we're not going to fight in the culture war. We need to focus on the issues at hand. We need to focus. See, central bank digital currency and this. And I'm like, I'm not saying that that's not important, but they're teaching pornography in schools right now. Can we clean that up first? Before we start talking about Austrian economics, before we start talking about certain tax policy, I get that important, important stuff. Let's focus on the culture. And for 60 years, they ignored the culture wars. And then you wonder why there's drag queens in your student's library teaching about uh, the little drag queen that could. Uh, It it just seems to me, it seems and to to you. And that's why how are Zoomers? Because you are an older Gen Z right mm-hmm. you're so you're in your, you're still in your 20s are they gravitating towards more populism or have they been brainwashed with the tiktok and the youtube and everything like that that and and the and the state propaganda that's sifted out through those apps sure yeah it, you know it's hard for me to say just because i exist in <clears throat> in such a conservative echo chamber and so i, I don't want to speak in in generalities because you know it's just hard for me to know it's hard for any one person to know But I do think that there is a potential here for a conservative resurgence among young people because so many young people throughout history, right, they want to be kind of like they want to be countercultural. They want to go against the culture. And, you know, you look at at the 60s, for example, and and like the, the hippies, right? Like that's obviously like a, you know, a liberal movement. It was a backlash towards their parents. It was being mad at dad. And so, you know, there could be a situation that's arising where the culture is so dominantly liberal and so overwhelmingly woke that there are young people who are are just saying, oh, screw this. Like, if I want to be countercultural, I'm just going to be as conservative as I can possibly be. And, you know, you see right now, for example, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but in the Catholic Church, there, there's been a, a, a surge in interest for the traditional mass, for the Latin mass. And me right and, here. I, I love it. I love yeah. the Latin, even though they're, of course, they're trying to outlaw it, but, mm-hmm. you know, or or they're having uh, federal agents in the back row just spying right. on people. But yeah, yeah, it's a different story. Yeah, accusing you of being a, do- a domestic extremist for uh, for for liking the Latin mass. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that there is a potential there as, as people become so fed up with, I, I mean, it's just become so transparent in the culture, how uh, discombobulated, backwards, incoherent. Uh, the the dominant liberal cultural ideology is that that people are looking for meaning and they're looking for purpose. And where are they turning? Well, they're turning to religion. They're turning to family, uh, you know, and those things are inherently conservative institutions. And so, you know, I'm 
sometimes I'm very pessimistic about it just because I, I do see things like TikTok culture um, that's just absolute poison. Uh, you know, it poisons your brain. It kills your productivity. It kills your drive, kills your ambition. Um, you know, how rampant, you know, online pornography is, is among young people. You know, it, it, it kills, you know, again, it kills your drive, kills your ambition, kills your meaningful relationships that you're supposed to have with other people. And uh, so, you know, sometimes it's, it's easy to be pessimistic, but I, I think as, as a conservative, you have to be, you have to remain hopeful and remain optimistic and you just have to keep fighting uh, day in and day out for, to, to restore what you believe in. I'm 35 and I'm an older millennial and my generation has kind of bucked the trend of you get more conservative as you get older. Mm -hmm. But I think my generation is it's a product of absolute brainwashing. It is you don't need to go to church. I mean, look, this has been going on since the boomer generation, even before. But boomers, they kind of stopped going to church. They normalized uh, no fault divorce and uh, praise Roe versus Wade and uh, and uh, opportunity to murder babies and feminism and, you know, second and now third wave feminism. Uh, Gen X kind of is in like that interesting demographic where they may be like more classically liberal. My generation is just they were raised on Harry Potter instead of going to church and superhero movies and uh, you know, it's like they believe in it. We in this house, we believe science is real and we believe that love is love and this and this and this and this. Those are my generations, like the generation of slogans uh, that you put on a T-shirt. My generation is the one that looks at tarot cards and crystals where they get they get to believe in. Uh, oh, well, I believe in astrology. See, I follow uh, my my patron saint is Neil deGrasse Tyson, all that. And I'm and again, I'm speaking in generalities, but. My generation was also one of the first big generations to tell you that you need to go to college as opposed to don't get into the trades. You don't need to do that. If you figure it out, it's like, you know, only losers go into trades. Those are just those pot smoking losers who get, you know, jobs right out of college, make $100,000 a year. You're supposed to get your communications degree when you're 25 and uh, somehow make uh, $25,000, $30,000 a year because that's what you're supposed to do. And you're supposed to go to college. And you're supposed to do this. And my generation is is like a, a a product of what's happening. I think a lot in the woke stuff in these HR departments. I remember years ago when you would see someone with blue hair and piercings and visible like chest and hand tattoos. You say, "Good luck getting hired somewhere." Well. They are getting hired. They're getting hired in your HR department. They're the ones that you misgendered somebody. You used a microaggression. You said something on Twitter in 2009 that somebody went back and looked through your history and got you canceled for it. Those are the people to watch out for. That's my generation. What I'm hoping for is the ones who actually did have kids in my generation, because that's another one. You don't need to have kids. You don't need no man. You know, you need to you need to be a a, a a a girl boss. You need to be this and that. You don't need any of this stuff. And uh, I, I think one of the problems is or I think one of the white pills, I should say, is that maybe the response to my generation will be the reversal where people will be a little bit more proud and country where they will be uh, have to look for some kind of meaning and they're not getting it out of Netflix and they're not getting it out of TikTok and they're not getting it out of what we have now normalized in our culture. Maybe they're like, hey, maybe there was something to going to church every Sunday. Maybe there was something to getting married and starting a family. I'm hopeful for that. I hope that's going to be the case, but I guess we'll see because it's it's incredible what 
that stat that I saw that nearly 25% of 13 to 17 year olds identify as mm-hmm. LGBTQ. That's, that's, that's literally impossible. Yeah. It's, it's terrifying. I know exactly what you're referencing. Um, and uh, it, a lot of it is political, right? I mean, the left has realized that if they can convince every, if they can convince everybody who is part of a quote unquote marginalized group that because of that identity, they should vote Democrat, then they've won the game because the only thing they have left to do is to convince everybody that they're part of a marginalized group, right? And if you don't believe it, they'll co-opt you into it anyways. You know, the, the example I always think of is um, intersex people. So people who are legitimately born with a physical deformity of, of having, uh, you know, there's something wrong, like something went wrong in their development and it's, yes. it's tragic. And, you know, they we used to call them hermaphrodites. Sure. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the I in LGBTQIA plus. So th- they've taken somebody who, you know, they're just born with a physical deformity and they've lumped them in with people who, who choose to uh, identify by the opposite sex and say, Oh, you're part of us now, you know, we're co-opting you into our, into our alphabet club. Right. And so um, it, it's, it, and it's all part of the game. They know that if they can convince everybody that they're oppressed and marginalized, they can get their vote forever because that's the Democrat party now. Right. It's like, Oh, you know, are you, are you part of a marginalized group or do you care about marginalized groups that are supposedly being discriminated against by the big, bad systemic racism in our society? Well, you must come vote for us. And so that, you know, that's an important thing to understand is that it is a very political agenda and the end goal is power for a select few group of Democrat politicians. That's the end goal. It's it's unbelievable. And especially with the Democrat Party, it's th- when I said they're good foot soldiers. I mean, I, I think back to when the days when you were in D.C., uh, four years ago at this exact time, they were starting to do the the Democrat presidential debates. And this is when Kamala Harris was on the scene accusing Joe Biden of being a racist for supporting busing. I was one of those girls who was being bused across town. And then you had Julian Castro was up there talking about transgender abortions. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is a clown show. Who's who's supporting all this? And then all of a sudden, you know, Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg won the Iowa caucus. It's so weird when you look back at who won the Iowa caucus. He won the Iowa caucus for the Democrats. And then James Clyburn makes a phone call and everybody just went, I guess we're supporting Joe Biden now. I guess this is who we're supposed. It's like you don't have that unity with libertarians. You don't have that unity with Republicans. Not saying it's a good thing, but. Boy, can they get get? But they will convince themselves. The Bernie Bros, the Elizabeth Warren, the uh, Hillary Clinton. I'm with her people. It, for as much as the what the Democrat Party has just chewed them up and spit them out and exploited them, especially Bernie. My God, and yet they all are like. I think you should support Joe Biden. Joe mm-hmm. Biden should be the president. Really? Just because James Clyburn made a phone call from South Carolina, and then everybody just fell in line. You're not going to have that unity in the Republican Party. So it's you know, as much as people can be unhappy with with Joe Biden currently right now and, you know, whatever mental state or him shuffling on stage and not knowing and licking his wife's fingers and sniffing kids and everything that's been going on right now. Those people are still going to vote for him. He's still going to have nearly 
what they say he had 81 million votes. He'll probably have 80, 80 million again next year. Next year. And what are you going to do about it? This is just that's who these people are. They are. They work in a very good, tight group. The Democrats. I got to hand it to them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's that has always been the challenge. And, uh, you know, I, I can't figure out exactly what it is. Um, I don't know if it's that people who are naturally conservative are more independent minded. Um, they're less likely to uh, just kind of defer to to authority. Um, but, you know, part of it could be that the Democrats have convinced a lot of their voters that every single election, everything is on the line. And in some sense, you know, it always is. But, you know, if you ask your average Democrat ahead of 2020, they'll tell you, if we reelect Donald Trump, democracy is over. Democracy is over. And democracy I, dies in darkness. Yeah. And, and I think that um, there will be far fewer conservative or Republican voters who would say the same thing. I was obviously devastated uh, when Joe Biden was elected. I, I thought our country would end up going to hell in a handbasket. And uh, to to a large extent, that's, you know, in my estimation, that's what's happened. But I don't think that democracy is on the line. I think there are certainly some very alarming trends and that Biden has showed far more authoritarian impulses than ever Donald Trump supposedly did. Um, however, you know, the Democrats have brainwashed a lot of their supporters into believing that that their opponents are are a bunch of authoritarian, you know, racist, fascist, evil people. And uh, it's it's effective. I mean, that's the one thing you can say is that it has been extremely effective. Joe Biden, it's funny because for for decades, Joe Biden was a largely I don't want to say feckless because it, that that's not the proper word, because clearly he's been uh, it's not alleged anymore. He's been on the take for a long time, whether it's credit card companies to foreign uh, interests and everything. Uh, but Joe Biden was never really known for anything other than there were two things. One of them was a crime bill from 1994, which he's had to come out and apologize for by saying it's racist by today's standards. And the other was the Clarence Thomas hearing, which that, of course, <laughs> fell flat. So what has Joe Biden done in Congress for all those years? So here comes 2007, and you have a this charismatic junior senator from Illinois that comes around, and they say, well, who should we pair this guy whose, last, whose name rhymes with Iraq and Osama, and his last name... <laughs> I mean, it's, his middle name is Hussein, for Same. God's sake. So how do we make it palatable? How about we get old Scranton or Wilmington Joe, the guy who takes the Amtrak? And when Biden was vice president, he was he was a joke. He was a punchline. Robin Williams did a special where he ripped on Joe Biden. Uh, this is a guy who ran for president that Johnny Carson, when he was still on the air, made jokes about his plagiarism. Yet he the media in 2020 and you saw this firsthand. They reconstructed his image from being this. I, I'm, I'm going to say he was a jackass. Uh, him challenging somebody, calling him fat, and and uh, uh, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time all the time. To hey, he's just a he's a kindly old grandpa. He's just grandpa. He's Grandpa Joe. It's okay. He says silly things. We all have grandpas who said, say things at the Thanksgiving dinner table at the wrong time, but that's just who he is. He's Joe being Joe. It's okay. Remember, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. He said that during the campaign on Charlemagne's show, yet still got elected. 
Now, whether anybody wants, still a lot of people voted for Joe Biden, this man who's in his 80s, this man who can't form sentences, that he needs cue cards to ask basic questions. He has cue cards telling them who the reporter is that's asking him a question, where their news outlet is, and what they're asking him, that they can't go off script because otherwise he's going to stumble, he's going to stutter, he's going to forget his name. uh, This is a man who just acknowledged the fact that he has a seventh grandchild just a couple of weeks ago who's four years old. Uh, it's, It's a man whose son is out getting bags of cash from China, from Ukraine, from everywhere. Yet this image in the media and by these people who are brainwashed, the the Zoomers, the millennials, is he's just Grandpa Joe. There's no corruption. There's no nothing. He's just a, he's just a good guy. I mean, he's just a, he cares about his son. His son's gone to hell and back from addiction. Why do you have to rip on the guy? He's he's done nothing wrong. In fact, he's he's turned this country around. Gas isn't five bucks anymore. It's four dollars, but it's not five dollars anymore. So he's turned this around, and it's amazing the image that what they have done to Joe Biden. And I'm afraid because of what's happening with this this focus on the indictments with with Donald Trump right now, that we're going to get another four years of Biden. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to understand. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, is reality and satire have essentially become one. You know, if I told you five, six years ago, we're going to have a president who forgets his own name, you know, it needs to be ushered off stage every time he speaks. Looks like he's always pumped full of uh, of B12. drugs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Every time he takes the stage, um, you know, you probably wouldn't believe me. And uh, it's it's difficult to understand. Um, and, and listen, as somebody who works in politics and and who, you know, analyzes it, I guess, for a living, um, you know, it's it's my job to put myself in the shoes of people that I disagree with and understand where try to understand where they're coming from so that I can, you know, make the case against the arguments that they're going to make. And as hard as I try, I I can't, I legitimately cannot understand the argument for Joe Biden. I, you know, I can at least understand somebody who says, well, I don't like Trump. So I, I, I'm going to vote for Biden. Okay. That that's something I can at least conceptualize from an intellectual standpoint, but, uh, the the argument in favor of Joe Biden that he is an effective, competent leader, I just don't think it's there. I don't think it exists. No, I, I think the only justification that I, I can conceivably think about other than I don't like Trump, so I'll vote for who's ever running against him is I was such a Barack Obama fan and we can only have two terms of him. He's term limited out. So getting Biden in there is basically a third Obama term. And from you being in D.C., the same names that were around during the Obama administration are still there under the Biden administration, just different titles. They're still around. And I guess if you're somebody who loved, who who worshipped uh, the cult of personality of Barack Obama and you say, well, look, it's not Obama, but it's kind of Obama. It's his, it was his running mate. It was his wingman. Well, no, his wingman was Eric Holder, but it, it, it's his vice president. So it's basically the same people in charge. So instead of it's kind of the loophole, instead of going eight years, you can try to get 16 years of Barack Obama. His fingerprints are all over this. Yeah. You know, I actually uh, uh, just uh, uh, was was helping work on a, on a piece about that. Um, you know, it's the Obama Biden relationship is really interesting because on the one hand, you know, you had Biden during the campaign say, well, I'm an Obama Democrat, right? He's, he is running on Obama's coattails and, and is 
many, as you said, many of the people in his administration were, were there during the Obama administration. But in another sense, you have somebody in Barack Obama who never believed in Joe Biden. You know, Obama famously uh, said or reportedly said, don't underestimate Joe's ability to F things up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's been reported by Politico. It's been reported by several outlets. So I, I definitely believe Obama said that. And it's interesting that Obama did not back Biden until he had already secured the nomination in 2020. So right. you have somebody in Obama who he recognizes what the rest of us recognize about Joe Biden, right? He he, he knows it. He understands it. And so that that's, and, and it's a lot of sense, that's more evidence that Biden's not really the one running the show. He's not really the one calling the shots. Nope. Um, it, it's all his staffers and his staffers are Obama staffers. So you are right. It is an attempt to get 16 years of Obama. But but objectively, it, it's been an utter failure. I mean, I wasn't an Obama fan. I think he was a bad president. Um, but there's no doubt that Biden's been worse. Uh, he's had less time to do it. But um, it, it's there's a very interesting dynamic there. And I think that I think that Biden is all of the worst impulses of Obama um, without some of the few bright spots uh, that, that we saw during the Obama administration. Yeah, the the whole thing with the Obama administration, I've talked about this plenty of times of when he was elected, a lot of us kind of figured what was going on, like, uh oh, we're trending in towards letting academia take over. And, you know, Republicans kind of needed a little bit of a slap in the face, which they got eventually by 2016 um, that we already mentioned. But the first term with Obama, uh, Obama was like, yeah, you know, you had a little bit of a fight in 2010. You had a, a little bit of a red resurgence and uh, Scott Walker and the Tea Party movement kind of took over. But by 2012, it was a different administration. I think it changed a lot because by 2012, it was, uh, oh, you're saying that Obama has socialist policies. Well, you know, socialist is just code word for a racial slur. You say, no, I think that this is a socialist policy. No, no. So what you're re really saying is you're calling him the N-word and you don't want to see. It. And we're like, no, nobody said that. That started ramping up. Then he wins. And all, then you hear him, which I think is one of the classic lines of politics, is him instead of trying to bring the country together, he said, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. And when he said that, a lot of people went, uh-oh, here we go. Second term. Everything that we feared about the first term is actually coming to fruition with the second term. That's when the woke stuff happened. That's when a lot of the things were were getting swept under the rug about drone bombings in the Middle East. And then when you bring it up, you say, well, Obama had all these scandals. You had Fast and Furious. You had this, this and this. And they're like, no, Obama's only scandal was he wore a tan suit to a press conference. And that's what they've done is they re. So it became now. You couldn't attack Obama, not just because of his race, but because of his politics. And by proxy, that is Joe Biden now. So why isn't Saturday Night Live doing uh, uh, having somebody play Joe Biden falling all over the place, falling off bikes, sniffing kids, doing all this? Instead, they put him have him put the aviators on and go like, yeah, he's cool. Grandpa Joe, that's who he is, because it's state propaganda is what it is. I mean, they had they had uh, Chevy Chase as Gerald Ford falling during every one of his press conferences in the first season of SNL. Gerald Ford fell once. He was a football player. He, he, was, he was an athlete. He wasn't that clumsy, but it was a huge thing that kind of swung an election was, oh, Gerald Ford falls all the time. Joe Biden falls all the time. And the media is just like, 
well, maybe they shouldn't have put a sandbag there. See, it could happen to everybody. They're doing his dirty work right now, and it's so transparent. We see it all the time, but it just it's one thing after another. I, I just saw a clip of, of Joe Biden from 2019. He is so much more coherent in 2019 than he is now. So what are you what's to say he's going to be like that when he's 86 years old, when he's leaving office, if he if that gets to that point? That's what I'm concerned about. But they'll do anything they can, because, again, the Democrat Party does play to win and Republican Party doesn't want to rock the boat too much. And that's I think that's to the detriment of of what we have kind of been trying to promote in uh, in our politics nowadays. Yeah. And there's another element there, too, both with the Democrat establishment and the media. Um, so, yes, the, you know, the, the obvious truth is they are partisans. They're interested in propping up Joe Biden. But the other thing that I don't think enough people talk about is that they're implicated in the Biden disaster. So Biden's presidency, how terrible it's been. And now the scandal, the corruption scandal that his entire White House is getting swept up in the media and the Democrats, they both had a role in that. They yep. propped up Biden in 2019. They censored the the Hunter Biden laptop story. Remember, remember, you have you have big tech and all these other media outlets, you know, picking up their cues from them saying, oh, no, the New York Post, they're spreading Russian disinformation. The story is not true. None of it's verified. And they maintain that lie just long enough for Biden to get elected. And then a few months later, it's, oh, actually, sorry, uh, that story was true. And we had the evidence that it was true all along. And same thing with the Democrat establishment. You know, they're propping up the Russian collusion hoax throughout Trump's presidency, and they ramped it right back up with the impeachment uh, and then all through 2020 with the covid and covering for Biden because he's in his basement and he's not campaigning. And well, it's covid. And so you have the Democrats and the media who they understand that were it not for them, Biden would not be in the White House. And so if Biden fails, if his presidency fails, if, if he's exposed as as a fraud and a liar. The media's credibility goes along with that, too. People remember, I mean, everybody remembers, you know, what it was like when the New York Post story was censored weeks oh, yeah. before the 2020 election. And so, you know, that was a huge blow to media credibility. And so they understand, too, that, hey, you know, if all this stuff about Biden's corruption is true, well, we've just been covering him for two years. So how does that make us look? And so they recognize that it's their butts on the line as well. And so that's, one of the reasons the defense of Biden has been so complete and, and the cover up has been so thorough is because it's self-preservation as much as it is uh, a commitment to liberal ideology. Yeah, I think I almost think they they're so brazen about it. There was that was it Time magazine or somebody had that story that a couple of months after the election. So it's in 2021. And it said the secret cabal that helped get Joe Biden in office. And that's what you when you deal with narcissists that they in the media. Trust me, I've worked in the media for a number of years. They're narcissists and they love to show people. They kind of like showing their work off to people. They, they like showing it off. And uh, they said that they have a secret cabal and they're all high fived each other. They glad hand and everything was great. Um, I, I mean, you think about all the lies that they spread, whether like you said about the Russian collusion, the covid stuff. I mean, how many times did we see during COVID they were showing, oh, we're piling piling up bodies and in and meat trucks and everything like that. And then you see a little watermark that says 2013 and it's in it's not in Italy, it's another country, and it's 
they put all this fake imagery when there's uh, they're complaining about uh, climate change and all the flooding and the hurricanes. And look how deep I am. I'm waist deep in this water. And then you see people walking in the background. And it's like a little trickle of water. They found something and they're on their knees. The media is so brazen about this. And they're so in the pockets of this uniparty, of the Democrats, of Joe Biden. I think they're just too deep right now. And they they are the the propaganda wing of the Democrat Party. So it almost doesn't matter what they put out there. Uh, I mean, everything they've accused the Trump family, the Bidens are doing. Oh, Donald Trump Jr. He's this this Donald Trump Jr. is on cocaine. It's like, no, that was actually Hunter Biden. Uh, Donald Trump is corrupt and uh, dealing with Ukraine. It's like in all these other countries. No, that's actually Joe Biden. So everything they accuse Donald Trump of doing is actually done by the Bidens. But you don't hear anything about it. And it's just it's shrugged shoulders right now, because I think the way they look at it, there's not too much of a bench that Kamala Harris is not very likable. I don't think she's very electable right now. Uh, I'm afraid of Gavin Newsom, because, again, you can cover anything about Gavin Newsom right now. You take a GoPro through the streets of Los Angeles, San Francisco, and you just see cracked out uh, fentanyl, homeless people and uh, feces in the street and everything. And this is the same Gavin Newsom who shut his state down, was arresting paddle boarders who are by themselves in 2020 trying to get some exercise and fresh air and some sunlight. Yet he's at the French Laundry unmasked at a 50th birthday party. And yet with how powerful Kamala Harris, the Pelosi's, the Gettys, everything in that San Francisco political machine, I foresee no matter what he did during COVID, no matter what he's going to do, I'm afraid he's going to be the next big thing. Patrick Bateman, American psycho as the next president of the United States. That's what I'm really afraid of. Yeah, Newsom's an, an interesting figure. Um, I, I think he he's one that he's obviously chomping at the bit. You know, he put out those national ads in response to uh, Governor DeSantis down in Florida uh, last year, earlier this year or last year. Uh, but the other one, too, that that people have sort of talked about is is actually Michelle Obama. And um, she's an interesting one. I, I don't know that she I, I, I don't think she wants to be president. I don't think she would ever want to run. Um, but there I think they're behind the scenes. The Democrats are courting her hard. You talk about extending the Obama legacy and the Obama oh, yeah. brand. She'd be the perfect fit for it. And so I think right now the biggest obstacle of that is that she herself you know, has no interest in it. But I think that lobbying, if that goes on for long enough, it it could uh, it could have an effect. Um, but, you know, whether it be Newsom um, or Michelle Obama or somebody else, I, I think there are a lot of Democrats who are starting to wonder, especially with this Biden corruption, like they're starting to look look over their shoulder a little bit and think, is are we really going to be able to do this again? Are we really going to be able to prop him up again? Are we really going to be able to hide all of his uh, insufficiencies without covid? Um, and, and they're starting to wonder. And, and that becomes very interesting as we get into the primary timeline, because, you know, things could happen very quickly, uh, depending on when it is that that Biden either if he were to suddenly be unable to run, if he were to be forced out, if he were to drop out or resign uh, from the race, um, things could become very interesting uh, around this time next year. Yeah, well, and and I'm also concerned about what the Republican base is that, uh, you know, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, they seem pretty establishment Republicans that uh, I think the party, the, the people are kind of behind. I mean, I hear Tim Scott 
or a Nikki Haley uh, uh, the, when they're giving a speech or even Mike Pence. And I'm like, yeah, this would have been a great speech in like 2012, but it's the, your time has passed. So when I hear Vivek Ramaswamy is, it, it have, has these ideas. And of course you have Ron DeSantis. And it's kind of sad because if it's weird because DeSantis was the anti-COVID governor. And if COVID was still kind of a thing, uh, you know, as much as CNN wants to continue making it a thing to this day, Ron DeSantis probably be the front runner in the Republican Party and front runner for president. But because COVID is not the thing anymore, it's not the uh, talk of the town and vaccines and everything like that. And I think DeSantis's campaign, his staffers are, as we like to say, a little too online. They've been fighting with a lot of Trump people when this is a time that should be some unity, some some kind of getting together. And instead, it's just all this infighting online between the the simps and the Trumpers and everything. I'm just like, this is counterproductive. This is doing nothing to help get behind a candidate and support them. And it just it seems so counterproductive right now what's happening. And it's a bad honestly, it's a bad look. We should be focused on Joe Biden's corruption right now. And instead, we're talking about uh, infights between Trump people and DeSantis people, Trump's indictments. And what was 2020? It seemed like it was an indictment on Donald Trump, whereas 2016 was an indictment on the Clintons. And uh, this is kind of one of those cases where if the focus is on Trump in 2024, I think Biden wins again. If Trump, DeSantis, all these people make the focus on Joe Biden, now you have a better shot at winning. But if it's all about Donald Trump and all about his misgivings or about uh, uh, this January 6th tweet and video in his Twitter drafts or this group of papers in his base in his bathroom in Mar-a-Lago, then I I, I have a feeling we're going to get another four years of, of this octogenarian as president. Yeah, you know, that's something that uh, I hear uh, uh, Ben Shapiro talk a lot about. I think he's right. Um, he says that uh, the winner of the election is usually the loser of the election is normally the person who is a referendum on. Uh, yes. And so his his theory is that in 2016, uh, the election was a referendum on uh, Obama and, and the Obama brand of politics represented by Hillary Clinton. And in 2020, the election was a referendum on Donald Trump. Um, you know, I. I think there's definitely some merit to that. Um, but yeah, I, I just find it difficult to believe that Joe Biden, that they're going to be able to prop him up for an entire another four years. I mean, it's it's something that uh, that you see a lot with older people. And, and it's unfortunate. It's sad. You know, when, when you get older, your decline is not linear. It's exponential. You know, there comes a time where you start falling off that cliff and it happens fast. I mean, I, you know, I've seen it with older people in my life where you know, the the difference that I see from, for example, 70 to 75, you might decline 10 percent, but between 75 and 80, you might decline 30 percent. And so for Biden, he's he's clearly past that point of no return and, and he's he's going downhill very quickly. And you mentioned, you know, even comparing 2019 to uh, to 2023. I mean, there's a huge difference. And, and there's going to come a time sooner rather than later where, you know, no matter how much B12 they give him, no matter how many naps they give him in a day, he won't be able to credibly pass as somebody competent enough to be president, even even for the most impassioned Democrat voters. Um, and, and so that's why this whole thing is kind of scary is because when you, when you think about it from that perspective, you have a Democrat establishment who they think that they can win an election with Biden. 
but they're pretty confident that he can't make it to the end. And so they're trying to just make him get through the election and then they can just have somebody else, whoever the vice president is, probably Kamala Harris, she can just take over for the last three years. And that's that's a scary prospect because they're running somebody with the intention or with the foreknowledge that that they don't think they're going to be there for the whole four years. And you talk about like a threat to democracy that that would be an actual threat to democracy because, you know, the, the dishonesty involved with that type of political calculus, it, it's 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 mind boggling. Yeah. Well, I, when you have the media in your pocket, it really helps for a lot of people. And uh, that's one thing that I'm concerned about. But at least if we have freelance journalists like yourself, somebody who has worked in D.C., and uh, so, yeah, go uh, go check out some of some of your articles, of course. We, I mean, we we could do a three hour podcast, four hour podcast, however long. But uh, you have some great stuff that's on here. Uh, this is what this is AMAC. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a just a quick blurb about them, a, a quick uh, promo, if I will. Let's see, it's the Association of Mature American Citizens. Uh, so if you've heard of AARP, AMAC's kind of like the conservative alternative to AARP. And uh, they're what what they're doing is is they're building out an alternative news operation as well, and so they're getting out uh, political news and analysis that you're not going to get from kind of your mainstream sources. Um, and so you know the organization itself, you know they've got a, a lot of great uh, you know benefits for their members, um, but all the news online is free, uh, and, and the news brand is AMAC Newsline. And um, I I'm biased, of course, but I really think that we're we're putting out some stuff that um, that nobody else is, and we're giving some takes that uh, that are pretty unique, um, and, and that's our goal. So yeah, you know, I encourage everybody to to go check that out. Um, I write for them. We, you know, we have a lot of other great writers. Uh, everything from foreign policy, domestic politics, um, even even stuff like you know modern tech developments. Um, so it's a it's a good site. Uh, I encourage everybody to check it out. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm on there uh, two to three times a week. Excellent. Well, yeah, go check them out. Go check out, uh, Shane's pieces. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate this, uh, for doing the podcast here. It's great to talk to somebody who's, um, a, a non-wacko leftist who's under 30. Cause it, I, I think that's the, you know, if you're writing for something like AMAC, the misconception is that if you're under 40, you're this like, you know, b- purple haired communist tattooed, uh, you know, everything like that. And it's like, no, that's not that's not always the case. I mean, sadly, there are enough of them who give the, the give us the wrong idea and everything. But uh, it's nice to have somebody who is like, no, you know, you're trying to get your head on straight. You're talking about things that actually matter in society and are, are uh, trying to further the conversation as opposed to just getting distracted by TikTok videos and that kind of stuff. So it's a uh, no it's, no, it's it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the Check Your Brain podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much, Tony. Happy to come back anytime. Yeah, and I'll, uh, it, it was funny because the first time we met, uh, I believe that you heard me doing this very podcast. We were in Myrtle Beach and talking about East Palestine, which is uh, you had mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, is I think is the story of the year that they're not going to talk about. And uh, while we care so much about Ukraine that we don't care about our own domestic stuff. And it just, it, it was funny because we were talking down in Myrtle beach about this and I'm like, Oh man, I got to get you on my podcast. And well, it, it took almost six months, but here we are. Yeah. But yeah. You'll be you, back on sometime. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, you mentioned hearing you talk about that. I, my ears perked up like kind of my my sixth sense was tingling because anytime I hear somebody talking uh, conservative stuff, because, you know, being a conservative, you got to be careful of of, uh, of what you say and who you talk to. You don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to get anybody not. upset. So, of course, not. you don't want uh, yeah, you don't want somebody yelling at you. And uh, uh, I, I've, I've had enough of that. I've but but I, I take it on. I take on all comers. That's what I like when putting out this podcast. And I'm I'm looking forward to the comments of people. Shut up. Do yeah. my podcast. That's what we talk about here. Uh, so, uh, again, Shane Harris, thanks for coming on the Check Your Rain podcast. And if you liked what you heard, subscribe now on my YouTube channel uh, for now until somebody heard something and they're going to strike me. Who knows? Uh, I'm also on Rumble as well. I'm on the major podcast platforms and I am on Patreon. So if you want episodes like this, right, rant and rave about everything from gender ideology to East Palestine to, you know, the best and worst concerts that I've ever been to go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazer for just as little as three bucks a month. And you get video and bonus content as well as early access to guests such as Shane Harris. So Shane, thanks for coming on and thank you for listening to today's check your rain podcast. I'll be back with a free episode coming up next Wednesday here on this podcast, uh, wherever you get them. As long as Spotify wants to co- cooperate, uh, Apple's great. iHeart's been great. Uh, Spotify has been a little, uh, shall we say, spotty. But uh, yeah, so go check me out on the major platforms. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Check Your Brain podcast. My name is Tony Mazur. Be back with you next week. Bye now.